Mortification of the Flesh, Chapter 7 General Means and Help Supplied to Those Who Would Mortify Their Sin Question number 5 I come now to address one last question regarding this doctrine of mortification, and that is this. I believe I hear a poor, perplexed soul that has heard all the sermons that I have preached upon this text, saying, I agree with everything you have said with regard to this duty of mortification. It is like a mirror which allows me to see into my own heart. By it, I discover that my heart is not yet mortified. I have a great many lusts and corruptions still unsubdued within me. Therefore, I would be glad to know how I might be enabled to mortify my sins and to subdue and overcome my corruptions. Thus, will I show you what it means and or what means and helps you may make use of in mortifying sin and in keeping under those corruptions that trouble you and prevail over you. And to achieve this, I will not run into specifics on how to mortify every particular lust, but instead shall provide general helps and means for keeping sin subdued, regardless of what the sin may be. I will give you seven or eight in all. Number one, the first means you should use is this. Be very careful to shun and avoid situations which lead to the sin to which you are most strongly addicted. When a man is lying sick with a febrile illness, although he may eat some lean meats, the doctor will tell him that he must refrain from eating strong meats. Now, if he does not abstain from them for a while, it will feed and heighten the illness, and he should expect no help or cure. And so also must you avoid anything that may stir up or lead to an opportunity for satisfying your lusts. You must take heed of going near the sin and avoid stumbling blocks if you do not wish to fall. You must avoid every opportunity for doing evil. As the Apostle says, quote, Hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Close quote. That's Jude 23. Another helpful scripture to consider is Numbers chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, where the Lord makes a law that a Nazarite must, quote, separate himself from wine and strong drink, close quote. And furthermore, the Lord forbids them to eat so much as the kernel or husk of the grape. They were forbidden not only to drink of the juice, but to eat of the husk of the grape, because it might tempt them to taste of the wine of the grape. 
and they were to avoid every opportunity for committing that sin. Well, in the same way, the people of God should not only be careful to avoid sinning, but should also avoid any situations that might tempt them to commit that sin. You remember when the children of Israel were going out of Egypt, that Pharaoh bid Moses leave his children and servants behind, Exodus chapter 10, verse 11. But Moses was resolute and would have them with him. Now, Pharaoh bids him go, but to leave his cattle, sheep, and oxen behind. That's verse 24. Nevertheless, Moses told him that not even a hoof would be left behind. For he knew that if they left anything behind, it might tempt the children of Israel to return to Egypt. Well, the way to mortify sin is to avoid any situation that might tempt you to commit the sin to which you are addicted. Number two, another general means to mortify sin is this. Withstand a lust or corruption in the very first risings and workings of it in your heart or in your mind. If you give way to a sin, the more power it will have over you, and the more difficult it will be to subdue it. You're not even gonna you're not even supposed to entertain them in your mind. When this when the when the suggestion comes, you should after practice at doing it, you should be able to sense it coming from a mile away before it even gets to you and starts to form in your head. So therefore, crush the cockatrice, or snake, in the egg. It is an easier matter to keep the enemy out than to expel him once he's gotten in. You should keep your soul as though it were a garrison, not giving way to sin, but resisting and opposing it at its first appearance. Number three, another means is this. Bend the greatest strength of your heart in earnest prayer unto God against the corruption that troubles you the most, even as Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, when he had a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet him. For this he, quote, besought the Lord three times, that it might depart from him, close quote. In Psalm 56, verse 9, David says, When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back, close quote. And thus, when we call upon and cry out to God, it is the way to make our lusts turn back from us. Now, every mortified man is a praying man. The real subduing of a lust can never be obtained without prayer. For prayer is the sword of the Spirit, the only way that we can conquer and overcome our corruptions. You will never be more troubled by unmortified lusts and corruptions that 
in times when you grow most lax, careless, and perfunctory in prayer. In Isaiah chapter 64, verses 6 through 7, the church complains, quote, We all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away, and there is none that calleth upon thy name, close quote. Well, what they're saying is this. We are carried headlong by our lusts, even as the dust is blown away by the wind. And what is the reason for it? Well, surely it is because there is no one who calls upon your name. And it has been said by one of our modern authors, quote, Either your sin will make you leave praying, or your praying will make you leave sinning, close quote. If you continue in prayer against sin, in time, prayer will mortify and kill your lusts and corruptions. Number four, if you would subdue your corruptions, then keep in your memory some special portions of Scripture which most expressly and vehemently forbid those sins unto which you are most strongly inclined. And this is an excellent way to fence in your heart against any corruption. David did as much in Psalm. 119, verse 11, he says, quote, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee, close quote. Which is the same as to say, I have hidden your commandment against my beloved and darling sin in my heart, so that when I am tempted to commit that sin, I might first consider your clear command against it. And in the same way, when our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was tempted by the devil, he told him, quote, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Close quote. Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. He reminded himself from Scripture that this was sin. Now, if you had in your thoughts some specific texts of Scripture which speak against those sins to which you are most inclined, well, this would be exceedingly helpful to you in subduing those sins. Therefore, search through the entire Bible and choose out those places of scripture that most dreadfully threaten against that sin. If you're inclined to sexual impurity, consider, for example, the text that warns him who goes into a harlot that, quote, none that go unto her return again, neither take they hold of the paths of life, close quote. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 19. That whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. 
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, and other such places, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, and Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 26. Do the same for any other sin that you are addicted to. Gather together and meditate upon those places in Scripture that speak most directly against that sin. Number five, direct yourself to the exercise of solemn fasting over the particular sin to which you are most inclined. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, the Apostle Paul says, quote, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Close quote. The way to tame an unruly heart is by fasting and prayer. A conscientious use of these duties will be a great help in giving corruptions their fatal blow. Fasting and prayer are the slaughterhouses where sins are put to death. I may say of sin, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, of the devils, that they are not all alike. And thus he says, quote, This kind will not go out but by fasting and prayer. Close quote. Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. So, some sins will not go out of us by ordinary means, yet will by fasting and prayer. Number six, if all these means will not prevail for the subduing of your lusts, then use this help. Lay yourself under a solemn covenant unto God that you will, through the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, forbear those sins that reign and rule within you. I say, to resolve in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all of your covenants and promises must be made in the strength of God's covenant and promise. No man should be quick to make such a vow or promise to God through the strength of Christ for subduing his lusts. For God will require it of him sooner or later. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 21. If you have used all other means for bridling your lusts. By the way, for those who don't know, a bridle is what goes into a horse's mouth. If you have used all other means for bridling your, bridling your lusts and they prove ineffective. In this case, we should bind ourselves to God in an oath that in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ we will forsake our sins. Now here's an objection. Someone may say, 
But if we break this vow, as we are in no way able to perform it, this will be a double sin. Well, answer. If you are weak and unable to perform this duty, you are just as incapable of doing any other duty that is required of you. But if God helps you and carries you on in this work by his strength, then you will be able to perform it. And a vow is God's ordinance. If you make a vow in Christ's strength, he will help you to accomplish it. Number seven. When you go about this work of mortification, do not bend your strength against one particular act of sin, but instead set all of your strength against the entire body of sin. The way to keep a tree from growing is not to cut off the branches, but to pull it up by its roots. Therefore, if you would ever truly mortify a lust, you must strike at the whole body of sin, laboring to bewail and subdue it. When David came to humble himself before God for the sin of adultery, he did not say, Lord, forgive me this sin only, but instead he laments the whole body of sin that was within him, saying, quote, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Close quote. Psalm 51, verse 5. Number 8. If you truly desire to mortify and subdue sin in your heart, then meditate frequently on Christ's death and your own. And these are effective ways to kill and overcome sin. Letter A. Meditate upon the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ponder these questions in your heart. Bullet point number one. Shall I live in the sins that the Lord Jesus Christ died to redeem me from? Bullet point number two. Shall I harbor in my heart the lusts that shed the blood of my dearest Savior? And finally, bullet point number three. Shall I not instead kill the sins that killed the Lord Jesus Christ and see the blood of those lusts that spilled the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? And such considerations as these will restrain a man from sin helping him to subdue and overcome it. Meditating upon the death of Christ is a very effective way to motivate us to crucify and kill our lusts. Letter B. Meditate upon your own death. The thought of your own death will stir you up to mortification. Now please consider the following thought within yourself. I will not live here forever. 
sooner or later, I will die. Now, after death comes the judgment, where I must give an account for everything I've ever done while in the body, be it good or evil. And those sins that are so sweet and delightful to me now will be gall and wormwood to me then, and like gravel in my belly. Certainly these sins will be bitter in the end. Serious meditation along these lines is a great help for keeping sin subdued. And now we come to use of consolation. And thus I have briefly covered these eight particular directions on how to mortify sin. Now the only thing remaining is to conclude what has been said with a comfortable use, a use of consolation. Perhaps you are a conscientious soul that hears me this day, and your conscience testifies that you have not been an enemy to your own soul in this matter, but have labored to oppose and mortify your lusts. And yet you find the workings of corruption to be very strong in your heart. If that is the case, I have these five words of encouragement for you. Number one, take this for your comfort, that although you use the utmost of your endeavors to mortify sin, yet you cannot remove the existence of sin within you, but can only prevent it from reigning in your heart. Sin will remain in your soul, like the beasts spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, verse 12. Quote, They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. Close quote. And so the existence of sin will not be taken away though it has been stripped of its reigning power. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul compares our bodies to earthen vessels, and that the filth of sin that is within us can never be fully cleansed and washed away until these vessels are broken into pieces and our bodies are laid in the dust. Until we shake off these bodies of flesh, we will never shake off our bodies of sin. And therefore, this may be a great comfort to you. God does not expect us to root out the presence of sin within us, but only to subdue the reigning power of sin over us. Number two, if you use every proper means of bridling your lusts, you may be certain that sooner or later grace will get the victory over sin. Sin may be a combatant, but it will never be a conqueror. 
in the scriptures, grace is frequently compared to oil and corruptions to water. And as oil will inevitably rise to the top, so grace will, in time, get the victory over your corruptions. Now it is said of the Lord Jesus Christ that he will not break the bruised reed, nor quench the smoking flax, until he has brought forth judgment into victory. Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. Here, by a bruised reed and smoking flax, are meant weak Christians. And the Lord Jesus Christ will not discourage them, even when their graces are not burning brightly. Yet, if they are merely smoldering, he will not put them out, until they have brought forth judgment into victory which is the same thing as to say, until those sparks and small beginnings of grace that are within them burn into a flame, becoming victorious over their corruptions. Now a reed is weak to begin with, but a bruised reed is weaker still, and yet this shall not be broken. The work of grace will be perfected in your soul, and you will be made victorious over all the oppositions and temptations of Satan. Number three, be comforted, beloved, in knowing that if you are careful to walk in the due improvement of those means which the Lord has set aside for the mortification of your sins, and despite this, your sins continue to prevail over you and overcome you, in this case, the Lord will hold you guiltless. Consider again that place in Scripture concerning the law of God regarding a damsel, in which the adulterer should be put to death. But God says that if the damsel were walking in a field, and a man came to her and defiled her, if she resisted him and cried out, then God says that the damsel shall be guiltless, but the man shall be put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 through 27. And thus, when the devil, in effect, commits an act of spiritual rape upon you, if your soul can bear you witness that you did cry out to God for help, and that you struggled and strived against the corruption with all your might and strength to suppress and keep it under, and yet in the end you could not prevail, but were overmatched by the devil, in this case, know for your comfort that God will hold you guiltless. Number four, take this also for your comfort, beloved, that God will 
Never damn you for that sin which you have spent an entire lifetime using every possible means to subdue and destroy. At the time of your death, you may plead with God, Oh Lord, will you condemn me and throw me into hell for the sin which I have labored all my lifetime to throw out of my heart? Now, naturalists tell us that if a, the crocodile sees a man that is afraid of it and runs from it, then it takes courage, chasing after the man and killing him. But if the man opposes and fights with the crocodile, it will then grow faint-hearted and run away, and the man may thus kill it. And so here. If you are faint-hearted and yield to every temptation and will not resist the incursions that sin makes upon you, then sin will overcome and kill you. But if you oppose and pursue sin, bending all of your strength against it, so that if you had or so that if had you more tears to shed, more prayers to make, or more strength to put forth, you would eagerly employ them all against sin. And if this is so, then I promise you, O oh man, that your corruptions shall never be your ruin. Though the devil foists sin upon you, Yet if you use every means of resisting it, the Lord will hold you guiltless. Number five. And finally, consider that if your heart is disturbed and troubled by a sin, it is evidence that this sin is more likely mortified than unmortified, provided that as this sin stirs within your heart, so also do your resolutions and supplications against, against this sin. As sin rises to fight against you, you also rise up to strive against it with fresh resolutions and resistance. Though sin may cause a great deal of stirring within your heart, yet this may indeed argue that sin is dying in you, rather than living, reigning, and prevailing over you. And thus, I have finished describing the second doctrine, which is, that the mortification of corruption is a necessary qualification required in all those who would attain salvation. And now we come to the portion for discussion or personal reflection. Number one, what general advice does the author give as ordinary means for mortifying sin? Number two, which of these strategies have you found most helpful in the past? Are there any strategies listed here which you have not yet made full use of? How might the application of this strategy 
or these strategies contribute to your ultimate victory over indwelling sin. And finally, number three, what consolation does the author offer to the believer who has become discouraged in his fight against sin? Which strikes you as most helpful? Explain your answer. And thus is the end of the chapter.